was king over Israel. And we went through a lot. That's an understatement to get to that point. He was since removed by his son, Absalom. Absalom not only kicked him out of power, kicked him out of the city, but Absalom pursued him to kill him. His own son trying to kill him. David had a man who commanded his army. Are we so far so good? His, this man's name was Joab. Joab was the commander of David's army. He was a ruthless warrior. David gave explicit instructions. No matter how bad my son Absalom has been, when we go to battle against him, don't harm Absalom. Joab had an opportunity to kill Absalom, and he did. Joab goes up to Absalom, kills him. David gets news that David's army has won the war. However, his son Absalom has been killed. He is a wreck. He is demolished about this. And so he relieves Joab of duties. Joab is a very powerful man, a very powerful man. However, um, there is another man, another name I want you to remember. Okay, everybody, here we are. Abishai. Abishai is the commander or was the commander of Absalom's army. He was Joab's counterpart. Everybody with me? Absalom, when he was fighting David, had a commander. His name was Abishai. When David wins the war, he makes Abishai the commander of the army of his army. He makes, the, he makes him a commander, which is probably a smart move. Why would he do that? It was a sign of peace. It was a sign of unity. There were 12 tribes of Israel, Judah, and a kind of an unknown, unrelegated tribe, had aligned themselves with David, and the 10 northern tribes had aligned themselves with Absalom. Well, the war is over, and so the 10 tribes are thinking, oh, great, now what's going to happen? David's coming in, having just killed 20,000 of their men. He moves to the River Jordan and waits, basically, to be invited back in Jerusalem. So Absalom is gone. You don't have to remember that name right now. You need to remember Joab was his former army commander, and Abishai, the former commander of the enemy, is now his army commander. Everybody good so far? That's critical. So anyway, we're about to, and so again, there's a lot of groundwork, but I don't want to move into this without, um, without a grasp. I went through this verse last week, but I think it's critical that I read the last verse of chapter 19. It says here, in the men of Israel, whenever you see men of Israel, we are talking about the 10 northern tribes. The men of Israel answered the men of Judah. We have 10 shares in the king. You get that? We have 10 tribes. We have 10 shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king, but the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel? To break this down in a better understanding, they are crossing the Jordan. Judah, this tribe, of, is carrying their banners, beating their drums, sounding their horns. They're walking through like a conquering army. And the 10 northern tribes see this and they're thinking, well, no, no, wait a minute. This is our king. We have 10 shares in him. You're walking up like... like like uh, you're the conquering army. That's not, we've invited you back in Jerusalem. We have 10 votes here into this man. Don't walk in like you, you've taken us over. 
But when it says here, the, the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words. These men of Judah were wealthy. This was a wealthy palatial region. This was, Judah was where the places where kings were born. This was the regal royal tribe. And so they pretty much won the argument. But they said, you know, you can say all you want, but he's our king. And so here we are, chapter 20, verse 1. Now there happened to be how about this explanation? Imagine being recorded for all the annals of history as this man. Now, there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri, but the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. This is no surprise. The men of Judah, who are they going to follow? Their king. Whenever you see men of Israel, we're again talking about the 10 northern tribes. So the men of Judah follow their king steadfastly. Oh, we're ready for another battle. Who is this worthless man? He is a very powerful man. He's a military leader. No doubt he's probably a high-ranking officer in, in the army of Israel. This man is not trying to overthrow David. He's trying to just basically tell David, I'm not, you're not my king. He looks to the people who he has some respect from and he says, we have no portion in this man. We have no vote. You obviously, he, he sees from Judah. He, he gives us nothing. Why are we gonna listen to him? And so he starts to cause this trouble. And so the people listen. And at first, did you notice, so all the men of Israel withdrew? This, the next time it says how many people follow him, remember that. Because at beginning when someone causes drama or causes a stir, everybody leans in. You ever notice that? Have you ever been to a town hall meeting and you see some person get up and start? They can change the whole demeanor of the meeting by just getting up and screaming at the city council and the county council. This is what's going on. Everybody gets riled up and heads are shaking. And yeah, we're going to you know, get our pitchforks and march on city hall. And everybody's, in, everybody's um, riled up. Why? Because it's easy. And this is what happens with drama sometimes. I'm trying to stop in the middle of scripture and tell you a story, but sometimes it, it begs to take note. If ever you're around someone with drama, understand they were born into it. They saw this their whole life. They saw it in their family and they try to bring it to you. Run, get away. You know, you go, oh, did you know what's going on here? Did you hear what's going on here? The rumor is here, get away from that drama. And there's people who've never been born into it. So they see it and it's just kind of a repulsive. This is a man who's a politician. He's a, he's a military officer who thought he had more power than he did. And he says, we're not going to follow the king. And so he tells everybody, let's go. Now, the loyalty of Judah is strong. And, and again, we're not surprised by that. If you ever watch a presidential election where you see um, a governor runs from a state, the governor always wins that state. Even in, I think it was, a, was it Reagan Dukakis when that, I think it was like 49 states to one, poor Dukakis got like one, he got his home, his home state of Massachusetts. And meanwhile, you can always count on the fact that a president or vice president is usually going to carry their state. They're proud of their, of their governor or senator, whatever is running. The people of Judah know it goes beyond regional pride. If we lose the king, we're going to have 10 angry tribes coming at us again. So they're, of course, they're loyal. Now, here's something that's very sad in verse 3. It's, it, it's in the middle of nowhere. We capture it in verse 3, and I'll 
um, read it here. David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king cooked, took the ten concubines who he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. And if you're walking here thinking, where did that come from? Well, I, you know, if you recall, Absalom, when he took over Jerusalem, took David's concubines that were used for his pleasure, took them to the roof of the palace and had relations with these concubines in front of everyone as a sign to defile the king's house and to prove who was in charge. And so David, in this verse, is historically just flowing in a manner, all of a sudden stops and, and, and tells what's going on. The reason I think it's important to look at this verse is that David is in a panic to think he has now lost everything. He's, 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 uh, he's locking the doors here. He's, he's preparing. He's already been kicked out of Jerusalem. What does he do? Well, I'm not leaving my concubines here. To ha- this is going to happen. He calls them all together, puts them in a palace, does not engage with them, locks the key, basically says, you're, this is where you're going to live. And they continue to live as widows uh, the rest of their life. This is sad. This is the harsh reality of the time. And, and a concubine is a concubine. A king's a king. The very fact they are human beings. And that was a terrible mistreatment, but that was atypical of the day to see that kind of thing. But that was a, that was a kingly action in a, in a bit of panic to protect, um, to protect his image. So um, remember this uh, new commander of the army that replaced Joab? Anybody remember his name? Amasai, Amasa, whatever your, whatever your, your translation reads. Watch what happens in verse four, and see if you can't see what's going on underlined. Here it is. Then the king said to Amasa, call the men of Judah together with me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed to him. Go back to verse four. This is what's intriguing to me, because what's really interesting is you have to remember, when this was written, this was written with people with a full understanding of what was going on. They had plenty of oral tradition. Not only was written, uh, written correspondence and written tradition very important, but you had the ability of oral tradition. That meant it was, it, for us, it's like, who said that? Can you trust that? Back in this day, that was a very common thread of communication. The king says to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together within three days. Did you notice he did not say, call the army of Israel together? Did you catch that? Who did he want? The loyal ones. He's like, call the men of Judah, my men. You call them together. And then he says something pretty profound. Look at this. He says, oh, then you better be here too. You better be, you better be here yourself. David Remember, David's sharp. David's a warrior king. He knows, he's looking at him going, I know you battled against me before. And so help me, if you get tempted, no, you're gonna go find my people of Judah. You bring them, I'm gonna give you three days. And buddy, you better be here right in this camp. And so he sends that word, verse five, to go back over that verse. It says, so Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the time it had been appointed. Now, there could be some people that want to defend this. Well, there was no sense of, you know, there was no communication. There was no email. There was no, you know, how did, you know, maybe he's running late. He was trying to assemble an army. Folks, if you have a king look at you and say, 
Oh, by the way, a king who has no problem beheading people and killing people that have killed. If, if he says, would you be here in three days? Would you miss that appointment? No. This man is obviously doing something. Something's going on. David is assuming something's going on. Pick up the next verse in verse six. So David said to Abishai, he calls another guy. He goes, now Sheba, the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape us. If you've got King, if you have David saying this, this guy is going to do more harm than us to us than Absalom. I don't know what kind of harm he's talking about, but Absalom wanted to kill David. So he's thinking, this guy, when, when, the, when Scripture says this man is a worthless man that they're facing as an enemy, this guy has to be a worthless man. And so he's saying, whatever you do, you, he says, you take my servants, you take my people, and you pursue them, and you bring him, you, you, you kill him, you do whatever you got to do. If he wins, we lose everything. So, um, verse 7. And there went out after Joab's men. There went out after him, I'm sorry, Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. And they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. I apologize for loving history too much. Sorry, you, gotta get, you guys have to go through this when we go through historical text. But let me explain this real quick. Did you see, first of all, guess who's back in the scene? Joab is back in the scene. Joab, you've been dismissed. Right? Where was he? I mean, Joab, you're, you're, you're relieved of your command. There's a new leader. Joab sees what's going on, steps into the scene to do something. Joab steps in, and then he takes these. Who are these guys? The Cherethites, the Pelethites, and the Termites? Who are these guys? These, the Cherethites, come from Crete. It's an island off of Greece. What are they doing there? The, Pareth, the Pelethites... That's mostly uh, Philistines. Uh, Philist uh, these are Philistines. Like, that was David's old enemy. Who, what? Why were these guys being there? Because that was very typical of kings to hire mercenaries. They would hire hard-fighting, hard-warrior mercenaries from other countries and bring them in. As a matter of fact, if you ever go to the Vatican, anybody ever been to the Vatican? You walk in, who are the guards that guard the Pope? They're Swiss guards. They're from Switzerland. To this day, there is a Swiss contingent that is sent down to Rome to guard the, the, the Vatican. This is no different than what would have happened for a couple thousand years. Kings would hire people to come in from other places because of two reasons. This is important for us to remember. Not important for us to remember. A side note. How about that? Number one, they didn't speak your language. They couldn't eavesdrop and see what's going on. Number two, you have to remember, everything was generational. When, at some point, your great-great-granddaddy probably killed someone's great-great-great-granddaddy and the grudge never got released. So you brought in fresh people. So anyway, he sends his personal bodyguard and, did you catch this, and all the mighty men. This is probably, if you don't know for sure, but I think it was the 30 mighty men that you're going to read about at the end of, day, at the end of uh, 2 Samuel. He sends his very best men. David does not say, all right, let's send um, our farmers and... Uh, ironsmiths and let's send our fishermen out with their spears and do the best. He knows what their fighting capability is. Bring in my personal bodyguard and kill this man. This man is evil and go get him. And so we, verse eight, when they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, 
Amasa came to meet him. So here comes the army commander, right? He's been gone. He's supposed to be there in three days. He walks up. Here comes Amasa to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment. It was over a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Creepy, I know. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. This is told in excruciating detail. Um, did you notice it said Joab showed up in a soldier's uniform? Joab on his own, went and put back on his uniform and mounted up with the bodyguard to go get him. And who shows up on the road? Amasa. Oh, well, yeah, you know, here, here I am. Oh, you know you're up to something. You know you're, he goes, oh, here I am. And so Joab gets off his horse. Amasa's got to be thinking, what is it? But wait a minute, his sword falls out onto the ground. He doesn't bend down to pick it up. Surely this is going to, he's coming in peace. He walks up through his tunic, because if, if you're on a horse, you wore an outer garment because there was so much dust being kicked up. And you would take the, under his arm, under garment, he, by his thigh, he reaches out, brings the other weapon up and kills him. Spills, and the Bible's clear here, spills his, his intestines all over the place. If you were brought up in Southern Sunday school, it'd probably say he got them real good. So he, <laughs> he gouges Amasa, Amasa falls to the ground. He's bleeding out. Verse 11, the picture goes on, and one of Joab's men took a stand by Amasa. And he said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Stop right here. This is, um, this soldier must have known something. Remember, when you read scripture, you got to go through with deductive reasoning. He must have known something. He walks over to this man who, by the way, is still alive. He walks over and stands and he says, whoever is with this man is against David. And then he says, whoever follows Joab, you're following the king. He's making a statement. So this, this faithful lieutenant or whoever this man is, is basically saying to the degree, this man was not faithful to David. Follow him. But look what happens in verse 12. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people had stopped, he carried Amasa out into the highway and out of the, on the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. Then he was taken out of the highway. All the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So this guy, this soldier is pretty smart. He's sitting there making a speech. The poor man is dying. I don't care how worthless he is. He's you know, he's dying. And he's saying, anybody who follows him is a traitor. You follow Joab. Joab's now the leader. Well, this sounds like a good speech, but he was the commander of the army. Who's marching up the road behind the bodyguard that's going after this worthless man? The people are walking by and like, wait a minute. That's our army commander down there. This is our, like, he's dead. And the lieutenant looks around and sees this. He's a bit, you know, he's, you can follow Joab. Joab is now fighting for, he's, he's, he's representing David. You got to follow him. And the, the men are shocked. So finally this guy drags the body, 
puts him in the field, throws a cover over him. And basically, just in the army, just at that point, just kept moving. Well, with all of this going on, with everything happening, where is Sheba? Where is this worthless man that we talked to? Where's the guy that led this revolt? Where's the, all his followers? Well, here it is, verse 14. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel Beth Maka and all the Bichrites who assembled and followed him. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maka. I'm sure it sounds like a town in Polk County there, right? They cast up a mound against the city and it stood against the rampart and they were battering the wall down to throw it down. What does it mean they cast up a mound against the city? So, layman's terms, this man who started the revolt, he goes into a walled city, nothing unusual. Remember David said, we better get him now before he gets behind some fortified fortress or, or walled city. He found these poor people who were, to- not to say poor, but they were totally unexpecting anything to happen. It's in a northern kingdom. He's been chased for a while now. He gets up there, but he had time to cast up a mount against the city. Those are earthen works that you would put in front of a, a gates because he knew they were going to come in with battering rams and try to batter down the walls. And so he builds this up, puts this up, and he's held up in this place. Nobody has followed him except for whatever stragglers are in this fortress. That's it. And so there's a full-on siege. A siege would have meant they would have surrounded the city, starved the citizens to death. Nothing was allowed to enter or leave the city. They were going to be ruthless with archers. The, the people couldn't walk in a public square without arrows raining down indiscriminately night or day. A siege was a very violent thing and took a lot of innocent lives. This whole chapter is about nothing but, it, but um, somebody going after this man's power, somebody killing this man, somebody doing... Who is the next character to raise up in this chapter? Who's the next one? Who's going to come in at this point with everything going on? Verse... Uh, you see the next verse 16. Here it is. Then a wise woman called out from the city. Listen, listen. Tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came nearer. And the woman said, are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel, and so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, far be it from me. Far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I'll withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Man, not even Land the Lakes has women like that. Eh? You, I mean, this woman is a, is a very wise woman, is a woman of wisdom. It's a woman of peace. It's a woman who's highly regarded as probably a a matriarch in her city. She comes up to the precipice on a wall and she yells out to an army, a woman yelling out, listen, listen. 
stop, stop everything. And she calls out Joab. Where's Joab? She had no idea that he was once commander of the army, well, not a commander of the army, now the commander. She just knows she's heard of this man through her circles and she yells at, where is Joab? Can you imagine the army looking at this woman who probably when you say is wise would have had age attached to it. The army backs off and says, Joab, there's a woman calling from you from the top of the wall. Goes over there and this woman, very well respected, says, I am known as a peaceable and respected woman in this town. Why are you doing this? What have you done that you come into our city to do this? And Joab says, it's not with you. There's a worthless man in there who tried to lead a revolt and I'm after him. Keep in mind, think of, think of communication. She had probably no, only one side of the story. I'm sure when this guy got there, he's like, oh yeah, man, Jerusalem's ransacked. David's dead. I'm setting up a, a new kingdom up here. They've only heard one story. And she says, he did what? Oh yeah, he tried to overthrow the king. Yeah, he said, that's the only man we're after. And then she looks at him and says, so help me, his head will be over this wall. Now, I doubt this woman had the veracity or the courage or the ability to go behead this man, but you know this woman commanded the respect of a lot of people and probably gathered them together and said, this needs to be done. And what what happened? Verse 22. And the woman went to all the people in her wisdom. I love that. In her wisdom. uh, And they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and they threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet and they dispersed from the city every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Every week you go through this, you think, we have we just landed the plane. We've got to be done. And then sure enough, more drama hits. And Joab, by the way, just if we were having a small group Bible study, if we're just small enough, we can do this. Um, would you agree probably that, what do you, you think? I'm split. Do you think Joab really would have, you think he was telling the truth when he's like, I, me, wreck a city? I wouldn't do that. Part of me's thinking, maybe he wouldn't. Part of me's thinking, oh yeah, you would. This guy, and I know I'm going to lose anybody under 40 in here, but any, he's, this guy is the J.R. Ewing of the day. If you ever watch Dallas, this guy, is he good? Is he bad? Is he good? And I'll explain later at lunch. But, um, but here, you sit there and think, man, the, 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 the abnormality of, of what's happening here. And then... Um, and then we go to leave the next few verses here. This, if you're not careful, you can just check out and say, eh, this is uh, just a three, three or four verses of, of, of names, but let's pick it up anyway. We'll read it through, and I'll just kind of explain as best I can. Now, Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benaniah, the son of jo- Jolada, uh, I'm sorry, jo- uh, Jola- Jolada, let's just say that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> You're stuck with me, y'all. And command of the Cherethites and the Felthites. Remember, that's the, uh, those are the bodyguards. So he has a new commander. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. By the way, you say forced labor could be, what were those? Was that slaves? Were those former um, soldiers in Israel? Um, we don't know, but there was forced labor at the time, which would have built a lot of things. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahulid, which was the recorder. He's the guy who was... The, um, the one who would pave the way for the king's appointments. And Sheba was a secretary. 
Zadok and Abathar, for those of you who love um, all the Bible names, those guys are still in place. These twins are still priests. They're still in place. But there's a new guy, verse 26. And Ira the Jairite was also David's priest. So he appointed some different people. Basically, that's in there to say this. I'm back in power. I'm forming my cabinet. Everybody's in place. And Joab is back as commander of the army of Israel. J.R. Ewing is back at South Fork. He is back... (laughs) as commander of this army. And so you look back at this and you keep thinking, you know, where is it that we, um, when we look at the scripture, we, we have to ask ourselves, what was the purpose of God putting that chapter in there? And in everything, no matter how bloodthirsty something is, no matter how horrendous something is, it's in there for a reason. Now, the Bible is divided into areas of history, poetry. You know, they get to the areas of theology that we get our marching orders from. But in this case, this is, um, I think it's important for you and I to grasp that there are models in here that we can take from. The reality is, in all the evil that David has gone through, it reminds you and I, evil does what evil does. And righteousness will not leave. And I say that to encourage you because in our families, in your families, is where the enemy loves to attack. The enemy loves to move in and move against you. It usually comes in a place of work, comes in a place of family, when evil will do what it does. Try to divide and wreck and spoil. And so what we have to do, we have a choice. We have a choice. We look at righteousness and we pursue that even when we're overwhelmed. Have you ever noticed in scripture, I think we brought this up last week and it's a typical case here. When it comes to God's people, never been concerned about overwhelming odds. Never. When that war broke out, there were 10 tribes there who were basically saying, yeah, we kind of like this new leader. David with his tribe of Judah who, by the way, were not the greatest fighters. This was, this was the upper echelon of society. This is where, again, royalty and leaders came from. It wasn't where you're, it wasn't the blue collar area where men would know how to handle a spear or a bow. David was not concerned with being outnumbered. And when he said, I'm going to defend this kingdom and chase that man down and kill that man and do this to that man, he did so and he took action for righteousness sake even though David was a man who continually sinned and messed up. And then this woman. To me, I mean, I think you look at every time you look at a chapter, who's the hero? The hero is always God. He's always the mighty warrior, the silent warrior. But look at this picture of how he used this woman. This woman is the underlying human hero of this. This woman was not fashioned in society to be someone who negotiates with a warlord. But yet she stands up and she yells out, not just please, please. She says, listen, listen. I want you to know what's going on. And sometimes I look at families who are overwhelmed by the evil intentions of a family member who began to usurp and destroy and work over something. And sometimes if you're not careful, you'll lose the whole family over protection of something that you needed to stop to take action, to say, listen, listen, I may be your mom, I may be your dad, I may be your grandparent, but this can't go on anymore. 
And in the midst of people taking action, sometimes it's for survival's sake. But sometimes it's for responsibility's sake. Think about this. The action that people have taken, ordinary people over time, have laid great work to show us how a life can be lived. Judy, not just to um, pick on you, but haven't had a chance to officiate your son's funeral, which that was three of four sons that you have, you have lost on this earth. Three of four. The action you took and would have taken would have been permissible. It would have been understood and empathized by anyone. But what action do you take? I rise up and praise the Lord. That is an action that you take. The actions that you, that you show are not easy, but they're necessary. And sometimes our actions are for people we will never know, we will never see, or even meet. I, I not to belabor you with war stories, but there was a, um, in the Second World War, in the closing months, there was a B-17 bomber that took a hit from what they call a flak round. A flak round is surface-to-air artillery. And the shell would, would hit in the air and blow up and hit fragments, and it explode, and the fragments would hit the planes. Well, the American B-17 bomber took, took a round, and they knew they took something, and he thought it was part of a flak. Well, they landed at Lake and Heath in England, and um, they got out of the plane and quickly realized it was a live shell still lodged in, under the wing. They, of course, they crawled out. They sent in bomb detection crews, and, and they brought out the bomb. They, they went to defuse it, and then the defuser went to the, went to the captain of the aircraft and said, I think you'll want this. And in it was um, where there should have been explosive powder was sawdust. And in it was a note written in German that said, this is all I can do for now. If the round was produced at a forced labor camp by prisoners, by people, by, by forced labor. And whatever in the midst of the ending days of Germany, when there was no quality control and get as many rounds out as possible, these prisoners saw an opportunity to do something. And this man would eventually, um, this piece is now in the Smithsonian. And this man took action to do what he could for people he would never know and never meet, even to the detriment of his own life. And when you start looking at the gospel and you start looking at what did God do for us and the fact that God took action out of a perfect realm we know as heaven, out of a place that you and I cannot even grasp for more than two or three seconds in our mind without silly imagery coming to our mind, he took action out of that place to restore a relationship with you and I. To say, I am not going to just send an emissary, I'm going to send my very own son to be born out of absolute perfection into a, into a society, to be begotten into a world that will make fun of him, that will mock him, that will never understand him, even to the point of the devil walking up to Jesus and Satan saying, you know me and I know you. Even though I'm fallen, I know who you are and I know the message you're trying to bring. And this is what, this is what Satan says to Jesus. He says, these people, they won't get it. They won't understand they won't, they won't know what you're talking about. I know because I've lived amongst them. 
that Jesus still had a plan and he moved forward with that plan. And he took that action all the way to a cross. He takes that action to a cross. And on that cross, the disciples saw what they saw, a Jesus, a Lord that they served, who was now lifelessly hanging on a cross. And what was their action that they took? What did they do? They went back to their lives, fishing. They went back to doing whatever they did in their trade and they left. But three days later, that lifeless body would walk and it would walk through walls and it would walk through anything. And what these 12 men saw, their actions were completely different. All 12 minus one went to a death and the other one exiled because what they had seen was something that that not only would they live for, but they would die for. And they took action to go out and love on people and take the message of Christ to other people. They took action. I've watched you take actions in here. I've seen you take action in times and places that you were gonna get nothing out of it, but you did. And I wanna encourage us You and I as believers are in a society where we are overrun and outnumbered. For some of you born before World War II and even after World War II, you were born into a country where nearly everyone went to church and proclaimed to be in this country a believer. We had a president as of recent that said we are no longer known as a Christian nation. We are going to a place where you continually see things fall apart. You can take two stances. You can get upset every time you watch the news and sit there and think, it should have been like this. The old days should be this. We deserve better. Or you can take individual action and do what no other people can do better than us. And that is show the love of Christ. Because you and I have seen the power of a resurrected Savior. You and I have seen the power of what it means to take a message to people who have no hope. For every time a Christian gripes, is there, no, there is no school in prayer. Imagine if you for once just prayed for that school. No one has stopped you and I from the power of prayer. No, for every time we've said you cannot read the Bible in school, when is the last time that you felt good about the power that God has given you by reading scripture out of faithfulness and not just duty or culture? Imagine taking the action to not only change your lives, but change the lives of others. I've said this before, the fastest growing church in the world as you and I breathe right now is in Iran. Iran, who 20 years ago could have counted in the tens of thousands of believers, is now broaching on every level and every organization working in Iran that there is now no less than a million believing Christians in the country of Iran. Do you know they do not have one organizational structure in place? There is not a local Baptist, Presbyterian, or Episcopalian association. There is no point of reference of this is where my father used to worship or mom used to teach Sunday school or sing in a choir. This is where, by the way, you still have to leave your phones at home so they don't track you in a gathering when you go to meet for a Bible study. There is no leader of the church. There is no president of a denomination. There is nothing. And the fastest growing church in the world is in a place where individuals have stood up to take action against all odds. It's not an anomaly. 
That's not something that happens because of the courage of the people and the ability. It's because of something of the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that dwells in you and I. That gives you the strength to rise up and to take action and do something. Making yourself a committee of one. Not waiting for the church. Not looking for the person to the right or the left. Or even the expectation that they'll do it. That in the end, God's will is done. It'll always be done. It'll always be fulfilled. But don't miss out on the journey. Don't miss out on the fact of what it felt like to be dependent, to be scared out of your mind, and to go into something with the idea that you'll never know the impact, the faces, the names, and the people of those that will have been impacted. All because of this. Taking the action that you and I each are individually drawn to know. Against all odds, against all logic and reasoning, stands our God. And in the midst of sometimes, whether it's coming through reading scripture, praying, or just the power of the Holy Spirit moving about you, why that song hit me so much, behold, our God. There is no one who will outlive him, no one who will outgive him, no one who will outlove him, no one who will outforgive him. No one, including us, for all the times we've condemned ourselves, for all the times we've condemned others, take the action of obedience. Take the action of beholding what God can do in your life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for the beauty of your love for us. Your life, um, Lord, was an example on this earth, and your life was certainly an example to so many. But Father, you're not just an example. You're not just a teacher. You, to those of us as believers, are the Messiah. You're the one who's come to rescue us. You're the one who's come to give us the message that we can truly look upon God without any hindrance. There is no amount of guilt, no amount of shame, no amount of condemnation, no amount of sin that can ever block us from the fact that we can interact with a holy, loving God. All that because you took action for us. All that because you pursued us. Lord, give us the ability in here to pursue that same action, to look to those things that, God, you've called us to do. Lord, I pray that um, if there be anyone in here who doesn't know you, that first action step they would take is to call on you as their Savior, to ask the person that brought them how to do that or to simply come and find one of us. Lord, thank you for speaking to us as the way you do through your word. In Jesus' name we pray.